I'm Diane Lee, and this is Never Forget What They Did. On March 12, 2020, the WHO declared COVID-19 a global pandemic. In July 2020, the Australian government actively prevented its citizens and permanent residents returning home from overseas or interstate. When we got back, they locked us up and made us pay. These are our stories because we must never forget what they did. In late 2019, Karen's two sons were on a routine Christmas visit to see their father in rural Canada. In 2020, the world shut down and, as unaccompanied minors, it was impossible for Karen to get her boys back to Australia. They were only allowed to do one international flight on their own. It was only through the kindness of a stranger who offered to accompany her sons from Montreal and through Los Angeles that Karen was reunited with them 11 months later. This is Karen's story. My story is a little bit strange and a little bit different probably because my children had gone on their own over to visit their father in Canada. So they actually were caught in Canada um, because they were they were on their own. So getting them back was that little bit more difficult. There was just that little bit more logistics and whatever because they were unaccompanied minors. Um, and they actually ended up being stuck for 11 months altogether. Yeah, so it was it was a bit hectic, but most of my stories, it wasn't just that they were stuck that was the problem so much. It was, for me, the thing that really bothered me was how much the government actually put up blocks for them coming home. And my story, for me, it, it wasn't overly traumatic compared to a lot of other people. And I really recognised what some other people were going through. But because I lived it myself, I could not believe like I knew it was happening because it was happening to us, but I thought, well, at least we're in a situation where it's not life and death, but this is not, this is not good. Karen, like all of us who were locked outside the country and just wanted to get home, couldn't believe what the Australian government had done, particularly as they had told us to shelter in place. Who knew there was a time limit on this advice? It's a nice story in some ways because it has a really nice human element to it. There were some really wonderful people that helped a lot. But um, when I saw what the government was doing or rather not doing, it was quite unbelievable. And it's really left me a bit traumatised in that I'm so concerned that the Australian government would be so quick just to wipe its hands of its citizens and just be happy to leave a huge number of its citizens without any sort of hope or without any sort of help at all and actively block them from returning to their own place, their own home. Exactly. I I was so shocked that... Morrison and the state and territory leaders, and I put that in quotation marks, would actively prevent us from getting home. It was definitely the active prevention. And I mean, a lot of people that were stuck are aware of the fact that 
the initial advice was to stay where you are. And that very quickly turned to, well, you should be home by now. What's your issue? Without any sort of acknowledgement of what they had done to prevent people coming home for the, or from the fact that they had allowed people or told people to stay where they were and that people's situations change you know um you might be fine for a month where you are but over time it becomes very very difficult it was difficult to get locally to an international airport so it depended on where you were so that was the first step and the first thing that prevented a lot of people but after that the government sort of put this roadblock up and then almost denied that it was there. So they had actually said, you can only have 30 people per flight coming in, which logically makes zero sense, none. It doesn't make any sense. And there's no logic that will explain that at all. And yet that's what they did. So they effectively got then the airlines to restrict who was coming to Australia or who could come and who couldn't. So it turned into a sort of a um, you know, like a lucky dip. You could buy a flight and you could get to Australia, no problem at all. Or you could buy, in my case, I bought three separate flights that were cancelled at each stage. So you could go on forever doing that. And some people just didn't have the resources to continue to buy flights. I heard of one guy who bought 10 and I, I only did three because in my case, it was really actually difficult to get because my children were unaccompanied minors, they could only do one international leg on their own. So I couldn't put them on a flight to one spot and then go internationally unaccompanied and then domestically unaccompanied. So at both ends, there had to be a way of getting them to an international airport and getting them from an international airport. And so that was what was difficult in my case and that was what in my case sort of gave the human side to the story because I actually had a beautiful person come to my rescue and offer to fly with them someone who I didn't know who I found on the internet we had a mutual friend through Facebook and she was just willing to do it in the end that's how it worked out but prior to meeting her I actually had contacted another two people that had offered to fly with my children and um, in both of those cases, we weren't able to match up our, just our dates and everything just didn't match up. And both of those people ended up flying. And that was months in, like I'd say six months in. And in both of those cases, they flew and I cried. It was hard, you know, it was really hard. And then I just found this like beautiful human who just happened to be in Montreal and just happened to be able to get a flight because of the way her booking had worked previously. She got a really fantastic guy to book her flights home, her and her husband. She offered to fly with my children to LA and then from LA they were going to fly unaccompanied on the same flight as her. They were business class. So initially they had bought like reasonably cheap business class tickets around the world. So they were getting home on business class. So then when I was offered the flight with them, it was $56,000 for my children to accompany them. So initially I thought, oh, I'm not going to be able to do this. But as it turned out, I had I had done a lot of research into children flying unaccompanied yeah. and how that worked um, at the Australian end. And the Australian government had actually put them outside of the quarantine caps. And because they had done that, they were also outside of the flight caps as such. 
So we were able to negotiate with the airline that they opened them um, some economy class tickets uh, just for them, for 24 hours, just for them. And they were able to fly back economy for $6,000 instead of 56,000. Airlines were flying essentially empty planes into Australia. Passengers, desperate to get home, were paying tens of thousands of dollars for flights with no guarantee of a seat. I couldn't fault the airlines because from their perspective, they're flying a, a passenger aircraft that seats 300 passengers and they're flying this aircraft and they can only bring 30 passengers in. So they have to maximise their revenue. They have to. Of course they do. And so they chose the first, the business class, and then they just would keep on throwing off the economy until they basically flew almost solely business class. And that was the interesting thing was a lot of people thought that uh, the Australian public tend to, tended to think that the restrictions on the aircraft were to do with um, spacing and so that people were going to be spaced out through the aircraft. But I spoke to many people who flew and there was no spacing in the aircraft at all. They would actually just pop them all in uh, business class, first class. Um, and the interesting thing was when they arrived, my observation was there was no spacing at all. They didn't care at all. They just had buses there and it didn't matter where your flight came from, whether it was a high COVID area, whether it was New Zealand, which had basically no COVID, they just threw everybody together with no uh, social distancing at all and just threw them all onto different buses and then put them all in hotels. So there was actually no logic to it, um, but it was very, very effective way of stopping people from coming home. With a Prime Minister who boasted about stopping the boats, that is, refugees from making it to Australia, he now had his sights set on stopping the planes carrying Australian citizens home. The unlawful National Cabinet ensured that all decisions were cloaked in secrecy. I find it hard to even know whether the states were complicit because the states were effectively gagged from saying anything because what they did was they had this prime minister's meeting, you know, where all the premiers got together. Now, you could have had one state where they may have said, oh, we don't care, we can, ha we can ha have as many people as you want come. That was not recorded. It was, there was a gag put on them. They weren't allowed to say what was said during these meetings. And I think it's now come out that that's not actually legal, which of course it isn't, but that's what was happening. So you don't actually know whether the states were complicit or which states were because nobody knows because it was all secret. And that really made me angry as well, because you didn't even know who was making these rules and what was going on, because it was all done in secret. That made me really angry. It took me a while to figure out where the caps had come from too, because that wasn't made clear. So I called around and I eventually found out that they were made by the Department of Transport. And, um, and I actually called them and said, look, can somebody please explain to me why these caps exist and how they make any sort of logical sense. 
and I spoke to a couple of people there at the department and they could not explain what the logic was because there was no logic. If you're going to say we only want 300 people, well, then that's one aircraft. You do not then say, well, that's going to be 30 people per aircraft. That makes no logical sense at all. It's bad for the environment. It obviously makes the prices just impossible. It's not good for the airline. A lot of airlines stopped flying. There were some airlines that were phenomenal in their response for Australia. For example, Singapore Airlines were absolutely above board in everything they did. They were just so excellent. I have to almost laugh because right at the beginning, I had a choice to get my children a ticket by Qantas or by Qatar Airlines. And I chose what I thought the logical, sensible most likely to fly airline would be, (laughs) which was Qantas. And they didn't fly. They didn't fly. And I also booked with um, Air New Zealand, who were also cancelled. And I also booked with um, um, Air Canada. Air Canada took my $3,000 and then said, this flight isn't, is cancelled, did not refund my money and continued to sell flights to Australia after they had cancelled my flight and after I couldn't get a flight. I could see them still selling them online. Qantas, the national carrier, was selling tickets too, knowing that it would cancel flights. Meanwhile, their A380 planes were being stored in the Mojave Desert. I did hear Qantas did that, but in my case, Qantas refunded me my money. But I just thought, yeah, the whole way it was done was really very awful to continue to sell flights when you know that you're not going to be flying. And that's my whole contention is that there was no sort of triage. The government didn't have any sort of a line. They didn't have any sort of a you know, you've got quarantine on this date, so get yourself a flight. There was no guarantee if you got a flight that you would get home. So as a result, for me, it was extremely difficult because my children were actually in a remote area. So I had to get them to a city. So my my children were living in, um, or, or they were staying with their father who's living in Northern Ontario in Canada. Well, they went over for Christmas. So they were supposed to be there sort of six weeks or so and he has to get them from northern northern Ontario down to an airport which is a two-day drive so that already sort of makes it more difficult because you have to have had a COVID test and you you know you have to be shown to be COVID free and all of that so there were just all of these additional logistics that that made it difficult to begin with but there were no flights out of Canada the international flights out of Canada outside North America. So, I mean, there were, I think there were, there were flights that were flying to LA and LA did have international flights, but you couldn't fly from Vancouver to Australia. There just wasn't anything. Um, and that, and that was part of the difficulty too, was that nobody knew what was going on. At one point I went to an agent because I thought, well, the agents are going to know who's flying and who isn't, et cetera. And the agents knew probably less than I did. I rang the embassy and they were so beyond unhelpful that it, it really bothered me. The, the guy was like, yeah, well, what do you want me to do? You want We're not going to buy your kids a flight home. What do you want? And I was like, no, I'm not asking for you to do that. I'm asking for some assistance. For example, can you tell me who's flying? Can you tell me where they're flying from? 
what which flights are actually leaving because there were so many ghost flights. Can you maybe put my children on a list so that you can update us as to what's happening? Just an, an email list. No, nah, no, nah, we don't do any of that. Oh, okay. Um, do you do anything at all? Nah, nah. I was just absolutely shocked. Um, so I ended up calling back because after talking with my family, they said, well, maybe you just got somebody who's really unhelpful. So maybe just call back. And I called the Canadian embassy here and Australia to see what they were doing and they said oh yeah we have a list and that they were doing those things that I said basically they had a list of of people that needed to get home and they were advising them updating them etc some Australian embassies did do that and some some embassies were quite good but the embassies that were not good were really not good Information about our plight was not really getting through to the Australian public, who didn't understand the impact of what the government had done. That's what people, I think, don't understand is that it's not just a matter of getting a flight. You, you could get it. People didn't believe me, I think, because I had a lot of conversations with people and I said, look, I can get a flight. I can absolutely get a flight. But the problem is the flight isn't going to actually take off. So I can buy as many flights as I want, but it's not going to actually help. And that was the frustration of the whole thing. I said, I'll give you $1,000 if you can get me a flight with my children on it. It just was impossible. And the hardest thing was as well that you, there was no time frame for it. You couldn't make any sort of arrangements. You couldn't say, well, I've just got to wait six months. You couldn't, there was nothing you could do. You All you could do was buy flights and have them cancelled, buy flights and have them cancelled. And if you were in a position where you had to absolutely know whether you were leaving or going, for example, if you have family, et cetera, and they have to live somewhere, you were just in the dark. And because you were overseas, what's more, you also didn't get any sort of government assistance or anything like that. So if you had lost your job, well, you were going to be out of luck and it, you could easily chew up all of your savings just on, on flights alone, easily. Even if you had hundreds of thousands of dollars, you could quite easily have burnt through that if you were trying to get a whole family home. Exactly, because basically you were booking all these flights and, and it, you couldn't get refunds. No one was refunding. So you, you had tens of thousands of dollars invested in airlines without um, having any remuneration. Yeah, I heard about people doing really bizarre things like just flying to Dubai and going, well, I'm just going to live here until I can get a flight home. Well, that's the other thing too, is the city that you're in made a massive amount of difference. Um, there were definitely flights going out of LA, London. You could get fairly regular flights if you were in the cities where there were flights going from. But if you don't live in those cities, you have to get to that city. And I think that's what people didn't understand. You've got to actually get to the city. You can navigate those things if you know that at the end of it, you have an international flight that is pretty much guaranteed to fly. So if you know that it's going to go, then you can organise yourself and you can 
get around that logistical nightmare. And that's what I experienced as well was I have all these logistical nightmares at my end because we have to go through different provinces and to a different country in order to get the international flight. I need to know that this international flight is going to fly because I cannot be caught with my children in another country halfway between where they were leaving and, and Australia. Some people were caught in really strange places, but I've got unaccompanied minors. I cannot have them being stuck in a country just randomly. That's what terrified me was where they were going to get stuck. Mindful of the near impossible logistics involved in getting her sons from Canada to Australia, Karen turned to Facebook and found a friend of a friend who was willing to help. It's a beautiful story. It's a lady who actually had worked with my best friend's mum, I think. And so I had put out this plea on, on Facebook in one of those groups and she saw me and my my friend's list was open and she saw that we had this friend in common and she said, well, this this is a wonderful woman. If you're friends with her, you must be okay sort of thing. She said, I'll do what I can to help. Her story was kind of interesting because, and I don't want to tell too much of her story because it's obviously not mine, but it sort of leads into my story. She was actually traveling around, uh, sort of around the world trip with her her partner, uh, her husband, and they had a place in in France. And so they'd been in France for a bit and then they were due to go to um, Montreal and on their way back to Australia. So they left France and they arrived in Morocco. And when they arrived in Morocco, everything shut down in the whole world and they couldn't leave Morocco at all. They couldn't get anywhere. And so because they could understand enough French, they were with their friends who were French and the French government said, we are organising a flight back to to France. So if you want to be on this repatriation flight, if you want to be on this flight, come to the French embassy, put your name down, put your email address down. We will let you know when this flight is happening. So that's what they did. They were locked down in Morocco. They couldn't, they couldn't get to Australia. They had nothing, nothing in Morocco. They thought this is not a good place to be in lockdown. Um, so they went to the French embassy and they put their names on this list, right? Um, so when the flight came up, they were emailed, told this repatriation flight to France is happening. They put themselves down on the list. They got on the flight. They arrived in France and the French people were, what are you doing here? France is closed. You're not French. What, what, how are you? And they said, oh, well, they didn't say that you had to be French. We just put our name down. And because, you know, they probably just assumed, well, only French people are going to answer because we said everything in French. So, so that was just their assumption. And, um, he said, well, we've got a place in France. We, she said, we can't go anywhere. We couldn't be stuck in Morocco. We can't get back to Australia. We can't go anywhere. You know, we're stuck. So they went, oh, well, okay, in you come then. So they went back into France and they sort of hung out there for a bit until they opened a little bit more quickly, I guess, and they were able to get to Montreal in Canada where she, where her son was, which is why they were sort of visiting there. So her son and her grandchild. So they were stuck in Montreal for quite a while, a few weeks, months, whatever. She said, we're in Montreal, we're here. If you can get your kids to Montreal and get them on our flight, when we get a flight, I'll let you know we're going to fly from uh, Montreal probably to LA and then from LA to somewhere in Australia. They're from Brisbane. 
um, which was perfect because I'm in Queensland, so that would have been perfect. They weren't able to get a flight to Brisbane um, because Queensland had really, really low numbers. They were able to get a flight from LA to Sydney. I was able to get my my kid's father, who is very ill himself, so he couldn't, I really didn't want him travelling too much. So that was a bit nerve-wracking. Um, but it was about a two-day drive to Montreal, so that was not difficult for them. They did all the testing and all of that sort of thing. It was a bit traumatic for the kids because they only had two weeks, basically. And so by the time they had all the, done all their testing and kept themselves in quarantine and whatever, they didn't have time to say goodbye to their friends. So they had obviously made friends because they'd been there for 11 months at this point, didn't know when they were ever going to be able to come home. And I wasn't able to give them any sort of a warning. I just had to say to them, look, at some point, I'm going to get you a flight and that will just have to be it. So they were a bit devastated about that. There was a stuff up with their um, test and so it had to be redone. So they were in quarantine that little bit extra. So yeah, they were a bit devastated about that. But um, yeah, they were able to get to Montreal, met these people. <laughs> and my kids were like, mum, you didn't tell us that you'd never met this lady before. <laughs> Because I just said, it's a really nice lady because I'd spoken to her and what have you, you know. Her and her husband flew with my kids across to LA, dragged them through the airport. I mean, bless her because my kids, they're like young teenagers and they're not they're not the most great travelling companions when they're tired and cranky and they've just said goodbye to their dad and their friends and, you know, all of that. You know, they were quite stressed and she was just wonderful with them. We had all the documents signed and everything that she could put them on. It's scary because you're talking about America. So you're talking about unaccompanied minors in a country that has nothing to do with them, which is America, which is not good at the best of times. And here this random person is putting these children onto a flight as unaccompanied minors to go across the other side of the world. So there was a bit of concern surrounding that, but we had all the documentation that we could and she was pretty staunch, like, I can do this. This is perfectly legal. And if they have any problems, I'm sure that we'll be able to sort it out. And she put them on the flight as unaccompanied minors. And they actually flew. So we got to Sydney and I was able to wave to her and her husband as they boarded the buses. Police everywhere. Just crazy town like you've never seen. My children were brought to the side where the diplomats, so diplomats and unaccompanied minors weren't required to hotel quarantine. So they were pulled off to the side. There was another guy there that was a diplomat and he was being driven to Canberra. I had my children and then there was some extra logistics involved with that. So in this case, when I arrived in Sydney, Sydney was a hotspot. So you were not allowed to fly from Sydney to Queensland and they changed the laws sort of the week the kids flew that you were no longer allowed to quarantine outside of a hotel with minors in Queensland. The states and territories controlled their borders and rules changed regularly around who could come in. Rules around quarantine changed regularly too. There was one rule for celebrities, government officials and sports people and another rule for everyone else. 
we were still able to do that in New South Wales. So, of course, I was terrified because it just changed overnight in Queensland with no warning or anything. And I was really against hotel quarantining for lots of different reasons. I thought it was really unsafe. I was just super concerned about it for any number of reasons. But fortunately, because I had unaccompanied minors, I didn't have to hotel quarantine. But of course, I couldn't quarantine at home. So we had to get an Airbnb in northern New South Wales because I had to be outside of Sydney in order to enter Queensland. So we had to quarantine for the two weeks in northern New South Wales. So get in the car, drive without stopping. Don't see anyone. Don't talk to anybody. Don't touch anyone. Don't. It was a little bit scary. Karen remains steadfast during the 11 months, concentrating on the bigger goal of getting her sons home. But there has been an impact, emotional, financial, physical. I recognise that it was a difficult situation and that it was a bit traumatic at the time. So I tried to always keep myself sort of steady with it. So I always tried to tell myself, look, my children are going to, they're safe and they are going to be able to come home at some point. So I sort of kept that in mind. And a lot of the time, I think I just, you know, when you're in the midst of it, you don't think about it. I was trying for those several months where I was trying to get them flights, etc. I was trying not to get too upset about it. I was trying to go, well, when it happens, it happens. I'm just going to keep myself steady. And I tried not to talk to them about it at all. So I didn't want to traumatize them. So I went, well, you know, we've got this stuff going on at the moment. So we're just going to see how we go. For me, they weren't in the ideal living situation. So their father lives in a in a cabin in the woods that's not properly winterized or anything like that. So they were not really somewhere where it was sustainable long term. And they did end up going and staying with their grandmother for a few months, which was great. But again, it's not their home. I think, and I tried to get my kids to appreciate the time that they had and enjoy it and not be too upset about what they were, what they were losing and just look at what they were gaining. But ultimately, I mean, it was difficult for my, particularly my younger son, who was 11 at the time. He missed out on graduating. So he ended up missing like the whole pretty much of year six. So he says, oh, mum, I never graduated. Um, And then he went straight into high school. When he got back, he had to get a bit of therapy. He was a bit traumatised. You know, he had made bonds because he was younger. The older one sort of understood a little bit more and he knew this is just for a time. And his perception of time didn't really concern him. And whereas the other one just... He he had really bonded with some friends there and he had to leave them without saying goodbye. That was traumatising. And then he had to bang straight into high school with not even, you know, he basically went from grade five here to, to high school where he didn't know anyone. And then there was the additional thing where, you know, the kids were starting to travel more to see their father. Their father was travelling here and because of COVID and the restrictions surrounding it, et cetera, it meant that they realised that there were going to be fewer trips and it was going to be much more difficult and things, and that was traumatising in itself as well. But like I said, I was also, my trauma has also been just the ongoing 
future travel and just feeling unsafe that in the regard that your government is going to actively prevent you from coming home if they just feel that that's in their best interest politically. Because I never felt that it was in their interest in a logical, safe sort of a, a way. Um, I never thought that any of this was done to keep Australia safe. I absolutely felt that it was political. They pushed it off to the airlines. They made it impossible. And they just basically didn't want to know about the Australian citizens because it was all about keeping COVID out of Australia from the dirty people that were travelling and those filthy, you know, <laughs> people with COVID that are over the seas and we're all safe here. And I've got to say, where I, where I live, we really weren't affected by COVID. It, it's really hard for me because I benefited from that to a large extent. I mean, we barely had any lockdown. We barely had any cases of COVID before the vaccinations came. And so, you know, and I've got an elderly mother, so... You know, I was glad that she didn't get COVID before she was fully vaccinated and there were antivirals available. We could have easily quarantined. I'm a big fan of that. Um, we could have easily still had the masks, et cetera. But the quarantining particularly, my children could have easily flown, quarantined, end of story. You know, they didn't need to be what, what it was with potluck, with the whether or not you got a seat that flew. It was a political fiasco is what it was. And with tragic consequences, I think. I think the human toll's been very real. I'm just almost embarrassed that, from my perspective, that, you know, things weren't so bad for me. I mean, I've had stories where an Australian's been medivaced home, dies, and husband and kids can't even come to the funeral, can't come to the bedside and then can't come to the funeral. You know, people whose parents are ill and can't be by their side while they're dying couldn't leave Australia to be by their side either. Stupid. Just terrible decision-making. Just absolutely woeful. I agree with you that it was all politically motivated. If you were concerned, you wouldn't line up the buses, like these are massive coaches, you wouldn't line them up at the airport and just chuck a whole bunch of passengers from all around the world all in together. Exactly. And my bus driver wasn't even wearing a mask. Well, the week, the week after I picked up my kids and saw the diplomat getting, I was chatting to his driver while we waited. And the week after that, a driver came down with COVID that had picked up a, and I thought, oh, I wonder if that was the same driver that I was chatting to. It was from the Sydney airport driving to Canberra. And I thought, poor guy, like that's, that's a really harsh, why do they even do that? This is the government doing this. Like they think it's appropriate for somebody arriving from overseas to get in a car with somebody and drive, who has a job, and drive with them for three hours, supposed to keep the windows down. Like, why not have a car hired and say, here's your car, don't talk to anyone, get in the car and drive it. You know, if, if, it's, if they're really concerned about health, and they're not. And the big thing was the difference, the way you're treated, the way diplomats, and I mean, this wasn't even a diplomat. I mean, this would have been somebody who just, some kind of public servant. They're treated completely differently as if, they don't get COVID. And as to the rest of us that are treated like mules, it was not very comprehensive, really. How is this helping? No. It was bizarro world. And I think I made the comment at the time, well, obviously diplomats don't get COVID, but the rest of us do. Like celebrities and sports people, diplomats and politicians could self-isolate while the rest of us were forced into hotel quarantine. 
In some states, miners could self-isolate. In other states, they too were forced into hotel quarantine. There was no consistent approach. Well, they still had to quarantine, but that was the bizarre thing, was that they were given a driver to drive with them in a closed space for three hours, and then they had to go into quarantine. But there should not be special dispensations if you're a diplomat or a celebrity or a movie star, for example, but for kids, absolutely. I mean, again, I I would have been happy to have gone into a quarantine situation like the ones in Darwin. Um, I would have been happy to self-isolate at home with my children, and I don't think they would have even probably noticed. And a lot of countries did that quite successfully, and I didn't really understand why they were using hotels the the way they were. In the beginning, I felt like it was quite logical um, to quickly do that. I mean, it it was a pivot, and, I mean, it was a smart possibly way of just they quickly got a bunch of people home they said just quarantine in a hotel and then we're done just trying to keep COVID out but then eventually you've got to develop another system and a system of quarantining at home would have seemed like the most obvious easy way of doing things. But obvious and easy isn't necessarily what previous government is is known for. Well I was just wondering you know what sort of political things went on in the background. I didn't do a lot of research into it but it seems like there's something in the hotel security industry that there must have been some kind of back deal sort of happening there because it certainly wasn't a very good choice. I kind of have my theories, yeah, around why and how it all turned out. Karen has some final words for the Australian government, particularly around human rights. I mean, my story is not tragic, um, but it happened. And so I know how things can happen when you're not expecting it. And I guess my big take to Australians would be, we have to really think about this and we have to really think about if this is the way we want our government to respond um, and if this is what we're going to expect when we travel overseas, if the Australian government can just completely wipe its hands from us and we're no longer considered to be citizens just because we're not within Australian borders. So I think it's a really important thing to think about and to really look at and maybe to consider adopting some of the UN's basic human rights Um, And one of those is that you have the right to return to your country of citizenship and not be arbitrarily denied. The Never Forget What They Did podcast tells our stories because what was done to us should never be forgotten. Music by Les FM on Pixabay. Our stories are released every week on a Sunday. 
You can find us on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on dianelee.com.au forward slash never forget.